Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good, good. Amen. That was a strong response for the early service, so well done. Maybe because it's a beautiful day out there, beautiful weather. You know, one of the things that I love about uh, Wisconsin is summer, and it's beautiful, and it's gorgeous. And also, the thing that I love about summer is wedding season. Katie and I got to, uh, I officiated a wedding yesterday for one of our, uh, a couple in our church family, Kyle and Winnie. It was beautiful. Just so much glory given to God in their ceremony. It was awesome. It was also the first wedding I've been to where you could also milk a cow. And so... <laughs> I felt like even though I've almost lived here 10 years, November will be a decade as a Wisconsinite, what, what, um, that I, f- I really felt like a Wisconsinite yesterday. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, that's another level when you can milk a cow at your wedding. Okay, it was awesome. You know, you know when you're at a wedding, um, you also tend to mentally go back and start thinking about your wedding day if you're married. And so that happens to us every time we go, I start thinking back about our wedding day, how beautiful it was, how special. And also, as I'm officiating, the wedding that uh, I did yesterday, they did the traditional vows, you know. um, And one of the things that's really common nowadays, and we did this in our wedding, was to write your own vows. And we wrote our vows and spoke them to one another on our wedding day, uh, August 15th, and anniversary's coming up. And uh, I remember saying those things, meaning them from the bottom of my heart, slipping that paper back into the interior pocket of my jacket. And I, not too long ago, was thinking, oh, man, I just want to look again at what I said back then because sometimes I need to be reminded. And so I went into that jacket and stuck my hand in the pocket, and that paper was gone. And I'm really sad about that. Because if I'm honest, also we didn't have videographers that day catching our wedding. We didn't have a recording or anything. So now I I have no record of the vows that I I made that day. Now, thankfully, those vows did come from my heart. And we have the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God at work in us to where hopefully I don't have to have that written vow to still be a faithful husband to my wife. But it, it saddens me that the, the promises I made to her, um, you know, almost eight years ago, I can't look back on and go, oh, yeah, that's what I said I would do. And that, that story, it's, it's a little sad, but it's going to come back up in our message today. So just hold on to that little nugget. Today we're talking about returning, restoring, and repenting. Uh, if you're new here, our church is doing something we're calling the Year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December, going Genesis to Revelation, following the main story of the Bible. In case you didn't know, in case you haven't realized, the Bible is not you know, 50 random stories about people of God randomly. It is one story, God's story. And we're hoping that as our church families reading the Bible more and more, reading through this plan, they're able to start seeing that, connecting the dots, and, and having their hearts stirred in awe and wonder of God's plan, God's provision, God's promises, God's faithfulness, and ultimately God's redemption that he's provided to us. Uh, Right now, this last week, week 27, which means we are over the hump halfway through the year of this reading plan, which also means we're getting closer to the New Testament. I know sometimes people are like, we've been in the Old Testament for a long time, but let me tell you, 
There's so much in the New Testament that you can't fully or rightly understand without the Old Testament. You don't understand the Passover. You don't understand the sacrificial system. You don't understand so many things in the New Testament without the Old Testament. So I don't know about you, but I personally have loved our time here in the Old Testament. Last week we were reading in Ezra, week 27. Next week will be week 28. But Ezra, in our time this year, reading through the Old Testament... We have seen that humanity, even Israel, have over and over again turned away from God. They have destroyed life and hardened their hearts. The book of Ezra shows that God again and again calls his people to return, to rebuild, and to repent. Those three re-words, if you will, are prominently the theme of the book of Ezra. Again, return, restoring or uh, rebuilding, and repenting. Last week we left off with the people of Judah in Babylon, in captivity, and we learned about how Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful to God in the face of a godless culture a godless kings, and even in the face of death. The book of Ezra is really a really exciting book because it is the next story in the line of the biblical narrative where we see yet again that God, unlike Stephen, does not forget his promises. You know, God does not forget his promises we don't, I, I remember when I was in Bible school, there was a worship leader that I was on the worship team, and, and I remember he'd be training with us, working with us, and we'd be practicing songs and trying to get them into memory, and uh, one of the things he would say over and over and over again is, paper never forgets. Guys, paper never forgets, and because you'd come to practice, and you're like, oh, I forgot that part, and he would be telling us, note it down, the changes here, the shifts here, the modulation here. And he'd say, write it down because paper never forgets. And I'm sitting here going, hey, I've got that vows on the paper. Paper never forgets. But also, paper can be misplaced. The wonderful news that we see in Scripture is that even if paper is misplaced, God never forgets his promises. And this is abundantly clear in the book of Ezra. Now, the book of Ezra is dedicated to the events following the beginning of the return from Babylonian captivity. And this is covering a time period of approximately a century. Ten chapters in Ezra, chapters 1 through 10, for us it feels pretty quick, boom, boom, boom. For them it was about a century, about a hundred years that these events unfolded. Now remember, Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, was captive in Babylon for how long? Do you guys remember how long it was? 70 years. That's how long they were prophesied that they would be there. The prophet Jeremiah said, hey, you're going to be here for 70 years. Get comfortable. Build homes. Get infiltrated into the community. Give your children in marriage. Have kids. Because you're going to be here for a while. And seek the welfare of the city in which I have sent you. Ezra, the book of Ezra, begins with the prophecy of Jeremiah 29 being fulfilled. Remember Jeremiah 29.10 that said, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. And then verse 11 going on, 
For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans of good, not of evil. Plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope 70 years from now. And so we see now the book of Ezra is the end of those 70 years. And, and, and what I really want us to see, you know, today a lot, of, a lot of criticism is being lobbied against Scripture, a lot of skepticism, a lot of doubt and unbelief, a lot of mockery is being thrown at Scripture. Did you know there is about 2,500 prophecies in Scripture that are foretelling with meticulous detail sometimes um, events that would come and unfold, and today about 2,000 of them have already been fulfilled to meticulous detail. So if you're someone who struggles and wrestles with, can the Bible be trusted? Is it really inerrant? Is it really true? Is it really authentic? The statistical likelihood of that many prophecies being fulfilled at random those many things just happening and somebody just happened to write it down and happened to get it right as if you can even, you know, every single year when March Madness rolls around, there's someone who's guaranteed that if, if somebody predicts a perfect March Madness bracket, that they'll give that winner a million dollars. How are they so confident that they could make that promise? Because they know the statistical likelihood of simply predicting what team's going to beat what team out of the 64 teams involved is almost impossible, pretty stinking near to impossible, that they've said, yeah, if anybody ever does it, we'll give them a million bucks. The statistical likelihood that 2,000 prophecies would be fulfilled is one in 10 to the 2,000th power. That means one with 2,000 zeros behind it. So let me give you a mental picture of how likely that is, because that's a big number you can't really wrap your head around. And some people have explained that it is, if you took the state of Texas, which is big, <laughs> lived there for many years, my family, most all of my family lives there, it's pretty big. I have driven for 12 hours without crossing the state border of Texas. It's big. <laughs> you know the whole everything's bigger in Texas? The state is big. And so if you took the state of Texas, filled it up to your waist with silver dollars, the entire state of Texas filled it up to your waist with silver dollars, chartered a helicopter, flew out over the state of Texas with one silver dollar that you marked an X on it with a Sharpie and just went, Bing, and threw it out somewhere in the state. The chances of you finding that silver dollar in the state of Texas, that's one in 10 to the 2,000th power. That's miraculous. That's pretty impressive. So all of that to say, God never forgets his promises. In Jeremiah 29, the prophecy that in 70 years, I will fulfill my promises to you and I will return to you. Check this out. The first wave of exiles from Judah taken to Babylon was in 606 BC. Then there were two more waves. There were three waves of people taken from Judah to Babylon. Uh, the first wave in 606 BC, then two more waves. The last wave was in 586 BC. The first returning wave, there was multiple waves of people coming back to Judah. The first returning wave was in 536 B.C. 
<clears throat> AKA 70 years after the first wave. That's pretty awesome. That's prophecy fulfilled. That's a promise of God. Let's look in Ezra chapter 1. We're going to see this take place. Ezra chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Notice that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Some interesting things right there. Cyrus is a pagan king, doesn't worship the Lord, doesn't know the Lord, but the Lord stirred up and moved on his heart. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in, uh, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. A, a couple of thoughts, a couple of notes here really quick. One, it's pay attention to the fact that those who came were those who were spurred by the Spirit of God, who God stirred them up to, to go. And also be mindful of the fact that if you go into the next chapter and you start doing a lot of math from all the names that are listed, you'd find that just under about 50,000 people came back. And we know also that there were about a million Israelites in the kingdom of Babylon. Only 50,000 came back in this first wave. Why? There's a really good chance that they got pretty comfortable in Babylon, got acclimated, got accustomed, and got to liking life there. Again, remember, they were uh, getting planted, having families. They, many of them would have owned businesses. Many of them would have, at this point, been uh, very prosperous, would have been very comfortable liking their life. And even if they weren't wealthy or prosperous or business owners, many of them even would have got to a place in their life where they were comfortable and liked life and, and resisted the invitation to go back. And so we see here that King Cyrus declares that he would uh, fulfill, that he would fulfill, or that he would send the people back that God told him. Now, there are some ancient historians like Herod, uh, Herodotus that would note, and even Josephus that would note, that there were people who came and brought the prophecy of uh, Isaiah to King Cyrus and let him know, said, hey man, your name, did you know, is actually mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and we're going to see that because one thing before we go there, I want us to notice is that God's heart is always for his people to return. 
When God, remember, God kicked the people of Judah out of Judah into uh, captivity. I almost mixed the words captivity and Babylon together. Cabalonivity? I don't know what was happening there. But he kicks the people out of Judah into Babylon, into captivity because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because of their idolatry, and the way that they embraced the ways of the pagan cultures around them. God says, enough is enough. You've got to get out. And he exiles them for 70 years. But we see also that even though God, in his goodness, in his justice, and in his righteousness, judging his people and exiling them was never in his plan to just go, you got to get out. That's my promised land. Good riddance. I'm done with you. This is where we see in Jeremiah that in 70 years, I'll bring you back for I know the plans I have for you, plans of good, not of evil. And even though you must have this time serving in Babylon, serving Nebuchadnezzar, serving these, uh, these pagan kings, I will bring you back. God's heart for his people has always been to return. But check this out. Let's go one step further, because it wasn't only the prophecy of Jeremiah, as I just alluded to, that from 70 years prior that is being fulfilled here. Let's hop over to the book of Isaiah really quick. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 44. I want to set a little bit of context and a couple things to be aware of before we read this passage from Isaiah 44. This is approximately 150 years before King Cyrus is even born. The Persian king Cyrus, the king who we just read about in Ezra chapter 1, this prophecy from Isaiah is about 150 years before that king is even born, is even named, is even known. Okay? Isaiah chapter 44, we'll read uh, starting in verse 26. Who confirms the word of his servant? And fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And I will raise up their ruins. Pause. Okay. This is also before Jerusalem and Judah had fallen. Isaiah is saying these things that we just read about Jerusalem being rebuilt when Jerusalem had not been destroyed. When Jerusalem had not fallen when the walls were still there, when the temple was still up. God prophesies through Isaiah, saying, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. It was, it was inhabited. If you were living in Isaiah's day and you hear this, and you're not cognizant of the idea that this is something foretold in the future, you're sitting there going, looking around going, uh, it, it is inhabited, Isaiah. If you're looking, she shall be rebuilt, you're going, It's built. But Isaiah, under the prophetic unction of God, is declaring things that would come. Let's continue reading in verse 27. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers? Who says of Cyrus, hmm, 150 years before Cyrus is born. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes? Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Guys, this is incredible. It's sad that so few people today see and recognize the the connections in Scripture throughout all of these books, the work of God, 
to plan and to exact his will over centuries, naming people that no one even knew were coming except God. God declares 150 years before Cyrus is born, who is my shepherd who's going to do my purposes, who will say of Jerusalem, she shall be rebuilt and your foundation shall be laid. Another thing that's interesting in this passage, it says uh, back in verse 27, uh, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. If we went on reading in, in chapter 45, you would read about Cyrus uh, crushing the gates of iron and steel. You would read about this conquering and that the gates would not be closed. Do you remember when we were reading in Daniel about the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, who was having the feast and the party, partying up with the instruments from God's temple that, that finally said, God said, enough is enough, and the hand appeared and wrote on the wall, many, many, tekel, a parson, uh, you've been counted, weighed, and measured, and found wanting, saying your kingdom's going to fall today. And that night, King Cyrus's folks came in and overthrew the kingdom of Babylon, King Cyrus, king of Persia, they conquered Babylon. You know how they did it? You can read this in ancient history from Herodotus. That upstream, the Euphrates River that ran through the middle of Babylon, they diverted the stream to dry it up so they could send a couple of people in under where the stream ran to come in and open the gates and overthrow the kingdom of Babylon. More prophecy right here in the book of Isaiah 150 years earlier, actually at that point it would be more like 160, 170 years, that that prophecy was being fulfilled of the fall of Babylon. God does not forget his promises. I'm hoping and praying today that this is just stirring faith in your heart. This is just giving, strengthening your spine, your backbone, your foundation, and confidence in the word of God. That if he spoke it, he will do it. Now remember the last thing we read there in verse 28. Your foundation shall be laid. Let's go back to Ezra. Ezra chapter 3 this time. I'm going to flip back over to Ezra chapter 3 for time's sake. Unfortunately, I can't teach all 10 chapters of the book of Ezra. That's why I'm hoping that you're doing your reading plan throughout the week. Back to Ezra chapter 3. Picking up at verses 8 through 13, we're talking about the rebuilding of the temple now. There were some key leaders like Zerubbabel who had gone back to do this work that Cyrus had commissioned. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, it's two years after they've been back, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, made a beginning. Listen, I just want to say, Again, why do we even need baby name books today or bloggers? Just come on, guys. If you, I know we've got quite a few families expecting. Just, just flip it open. You've got some good ones in here. <laughs> oh, boy, where was I? Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity... They appointed from the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation, 
When the brothers laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the, the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, meaning different parts. They would respond back and forth. They sang uh, responsively, praising and giving thanks to the, uh, to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they had saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So many of them had their emotions stirred and reminded of the beautiful temple that was destroyed, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout for the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. We see this faithful group of people come back and begin the work of rebuilding the temple. It would take years. But they get the foundation laid. And all the people seeing the foundation laid begin weeping and rejoicing and celebrating. Because you have to remember, they have been conquered. Their city walls and temple destroyed and lay waste. They've been exiled taken out to Babylon where they've been for 70 years. And finally, God comes through with his promises the way he said he would. They come back and begin the work and they see that God is accomplishing what he said he would do. They get to be a part of it. They get to be a part of the work of the Lord. And then when that foundation is laid, fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 44, they begin weeping and rejoicing and celebrating, praising God. So let me say one more time, God does not forget his promises. <laughs> this ought to be a deep comfort to our souls. Because although God gave many promises to ancient Israel and ancient Judah, there are many promises to us in Scripture. Today, in the midst of your suffering, we have some members in our church family who are going through some stuff right now who are in the middle of some pretty difficult battles. And we can see the nature of God and his faithfulness, that he's faithful to what he promised. And we can look in the New Testament and see promises given directly to us, that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God does not forget his promises. That he would give us a peace that passes understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God does not forget his promises. That he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God does not forget his promises. We can look at the writings of the Apostle Peter where he said, God is not slack in his promises to you, but is patient. Where we look at the world and we look at everything that's going on and we go, God, what's going on? What are you doing? Aren't you in control? We see that in scripture that you are. <laughs> what is going on? We see from this over centuries in the Old Testament, God knows what he's doing. God has made promises. He will fulfill those promises. And in those moments where we're in 
our challenge. In those moments where we look up at the world and we go, what is going on? And we can just continue, like I said last week, to lay our head and rest on the pillow of God's sovereignty, on the pillow of God's promises, that he's in control, he will fulfill every promise that he has ever spoken. He is good, he can be trusted, and that is a great anchor for us in a world of turmoil, in a world of suffering, in a world of trial, that we have a God with us, we have a Holy Spirit within us, we have promises from his word that he will see through. Another thing we see from this is that God's heart is always to restore what was destroyed. God's heart is always to restore what was destroyed. We see this not only in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in case you didn't know, Ezra and Nehemiah originally was one book in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. It's been separated in, in ours. But in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah we, is not the only place that we see that God's heart is to restore, to rebuild what has been destroyed. We see this in the garden in Genesis. That God didn't say, well, guys, you screwed it up. Lay in the bed that you made. He says, no, you disobeyed, you rebelled, and because of that, there has to be consequences. But there will be a day that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus Christ on the cross, conquering Satan, conquering sin, conquering death as he rose from the dead on the third day. We see God's heart to, to restore and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem all throughout Scripture. We see it in the entire storyline. The primary narrative of all of Scripture is that God created, man sinned, enter destruction, Christ redeems, and God restores mankind and the world, which were both destroyed by sin. We see sprinklings of this all throughout Scripture. This is one more spot where it is revealed and confirmed over and over again throughout the entire story of Scripture that God is a redeemer. He is a restorer. He is a rebuilder. And again, we look back at God's heart to redeem, rebuild, and restore in the ancient days. And we are comforted in the fact that whatever destruction sin has caused in our lives today, God's heart is still redemption, restoration, healing. And so you might think, like Judah in Babylon, who are thinking, man, we have really botched this. Look at where we have found ourselves. In Babylonian captivity, look at where we have found ourselves with our, our precious Judah fallen and destroyed. Similarly today, you might find yourself in circumstances where you think, man, look what I've done to my life. Look at the mess I've made. Look at the consequences of my sins. And you can sit here and think, I've done too much, too bad. What could God do for me? What could God do with me or through me? And God has shown he is not bound or hindered by our sin, and as much sin as you have committed, the grace of God is greater is what Romans would teach us. That where sin abounded, all the more grace abounded. And Paul, of course, would go on to say, now, is that, does that mean let's just sin and live it up because grace abounds? No, certainly not. 
For we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We, we consider ourselves dead to sin. We, we recognize that's not for us. But at the same time, we don't go into the opposite extreme of just going, I've really ruined this. I've really botched this. What could God do in my life? What would God do for me? What would God do with me? What could God do in me or through me? And scripture is full of flawed, jacked up, messed up, sinful people that God uses for his purposes, for his glory, not the glory of these messed up sinners. And to us today, we can go, wow, praise God, thank you, Lord, that you still want to use me despite my weakness, despite my flaws, because it reveals the power, the goodness, the glory, the grace, the love of God in using us. We next see, as we would continue on throughout the book of Ezra, we would see this in the heart of Ezra as well. This man of God who shows up in chapter 7, this priest and scribe who is committed to restoring the culture. Zerubbabel was committed to restoring the temple. Ezra comes along and he's committed to restoring the culture, the heart of God within the people. He's committed to restoring the culture the, uh, of faithfulness to God, not to Babylonian gods or Canaanite gods, not restoring us to faithfulness to the ways of the world. Some 50 years after the completion of the temple, Ezra shows up in chapter 7. Let's flip quickly to chapter 7 in the book of Ezra. And again, there's, there's so much in here. I hope you guys are doing the reading plan throughout the week because there's more than I can teach or touch on. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, uh, Marioth I'm, I know I'm butchering these, son of uh, Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abushai, Whew. Son of Phinehas, why, why did I pick to read starting here? I should have just jumped ahead a few verses. But, but also we should see that it really mattered to them, the lineage, the line which we've seen throughout Scripture. Son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. They wanted to make sure that you could connect that he had the lineage of priests, that he was a true priest. Verse 6, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Amen. And to do it, and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. A another pause for your confidence in Scripture. All these details of this month and this year and this day under this king, under this year of this king, all those details, especially in this era of, of Babylon and of Persia and, and the Judean exile, 
these details are well documented and confirmed throughout ancient history. Again, with historians like Herodotus and uh, Josephus, many others have written these things confirming that this stuff that we're reading in our Bible is true and legitimate and actually historically happened, not just from ancient Hebrew writing. It's from outside Hebrew sources as well. So there's just a little bit more confidence there. What we want to see here, again, this line I love about Ezra in verse 9. For the good hand of God was on him, verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it, to teach his statutes and his rules. Man, could, could that be said of us? By the grace of God, could that be said of us that we have set our hearts to study the word of God and to do it and to teach it. You might think, well, Pastor Stephen, I'm, I'm not articulate like you. I'm not a good orator. I can't speak. I can't teach. Listen, every single one of us needs to know the foundations of the gospel, understanding scripture that we can in the relationships that we have. You have people in your life that I will never be able to reach. This is why we want to all grow in our, our knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of truth, that we can share the truth. And you know how we get there? By, like Ezra, setting our heart to study the Word of God. You can never grow to a place of confidence when you don't even know the source material. And, of course, also being filled with the Holy Spirit, whereby the power of God gives us boldness and the Holy Spirit gives us what we are to say. Man, could that be said of us by the grace of God set your heart to study God's word to do God's word and to teach and proclaim God's word I'll say that one more time set your heart recognize that that's you like Ezra Ezra is the one who set his heart we can and should set our hearts to study God's word to do God's word and to teach and proclaim God's word Ezra is a man who loves God loves his law, and he's excited. He's really excited to head back to Judah, to the holy promised land where the temple has been rebuilt. He's heard it's been rebuilt. He's pumped about it. He's excited. The problem is when he expects to find a grateful people, a holy people who have now been reestablished with God's law, who are going to be faithfully worshiping God and serving God and following God. Instead, he finds the people who are just like they were before, marrying pagans and therefore embracing their pagan ways and idolatry. Let's look at next chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9 really quick. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives and themselves and their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands and in the faithfulness that, er, and in faithlessness the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Now, let me just take two seconds to say this is not about race 
This is if you go back to uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and you read the law and proclamations of God. He told his people to not take marriage and take, join themselves to people who were not following faithfully and serving the Lord. Because he knew that those influences would infiltrate their lives through marriage and they would then drift into serving those false gods, worshiping them, practicing idolatry, and practicing pagan ways. This is why scripture teaches us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Listen, I, I don't know who this could pertain to, so I'm going to turn around and talk to the wall for a minute. If you are, are dating someone that doesn't know, love, and serve the Lord, and you're hoping that you're going to win them over, I would maybe recommend that you don't move forward in a relationship with them until you see that the Holy Spirit has worked in them to uh, pursue and love and serve the Lord. Because... What I have seen happen many times, I'll turn back around, figure y'all probably don't want to look at the back of my head. What I've seen happen many times is people trying and hoping that uh, we'll just move forward and God will work in them after we get married and he'll change their heart. And that can happen. It's rare. And I have, unfortunately, on the contrary, seen people drawn away from the Lord by whom they marry. This matters. It's important. Listen, your faithfulness to God determines the way that you live. It determines the way you use your money. It determines the way uh, that you parent, the way that you practice marriage, the, uh, all the decisions you make in your life. And if you join yourself to people who do not know, love, uh, or want to follow God, you're setting yourself up for bumpy waters. So far, in the book of Ezra, God's people have been called to return they have been called to rebuild. Now they're being called to repent. Ezra sat appalled. But he bowed and prayed and went in front of the temple. And thankfully, by the grace of God, the people repent. They turn away from the, from the people, from their godly influences, their ungodly practices, and they turn back. Remember, when the law of God was given, remember how important it was and is to God that his people be holy. Remember, what does holy mean? It means other. It means different. It means separate. It means unlike anything else. If God's people are going to be holy, it means they're going to look different than all the rest of the people of the lands. That is no different in ancient Israel than it is for us today in the modern church. We are called to be holy. We are called to look different. The world ought to look at us and go, weirdos. And we're so concerned with being liked and making Jesus palatable and making him cool and accepted and celebrated to people who have hardened hearts in sin. We're like, like him. And they don't have the heart to like him because we want them to like us. Instead, we need to just embrace the fact that we're a peculiar people, that we're a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, different, set apart, weirdo, awkward people who don't fit into the world that we live. Why? Because this is not our home. Right now with our daughters, I'm reading through uh, uh, Little Pilgrim's Progress, a, a kid's version of the book where they made the characters animals, and it's cute, and, and I love it. We're reading through it, and there's the chapter where little Christian comes to the cross, and the burden falls off of the rabbit, little Christian's back, 
And I'm talking to my girls afterwards, and I said, what do you girls think that that burden was? And Marley said, was it sin? And I said, yes, it was. And she said, this is a story about Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> and that's the moment when I'm like, I'm the best dad in the world. <laughs> Joking. Definitely am not. Praise God for his grace working in my daughter's heart teaching. And, uh, but all of that to say, this is not our home, guys. Listen, in, in men's breakfast yesterday morning at the table, I said something that we need to be constantly confronted with. You live in the most dangerous country in the world. Do you realize that? Oh, being a Christian, you live in the most dangerous country in the world. You know why? Well, you think, oh, Pastor Stephen, no, 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 it's got to be China, it's got to be Korea, it's got to be Afghanistan where you could literally be killed for being a Christian. Yeah, and they go straight into their reward. And it's dangerous physically. We live in the most dangerous country because we have a society, a culture, and a world that we so easily let train us. And that we also look at others to justify decisions in our lives. We live in a world that is constantly seducing us, telling us, yeah, I, I guess if you want to, you can like Jesus, but here's all the other stuff that's really going to give you meaning. Here's all the other stuff that's really going to make you happy. Here's all the other stuff that's really going to give you fulfillment and satisfaction. You live in a country that is training you against godliness. And if you're not aware of it, if you're not sensitive to it, you'll just keep on going in the current of the river. Not being mindful of this is not our home. We are pilgrims. We look different. We live different. And our hope is not in the trinkets and toys and pacifiers of today. Our hope is in eternity with Christ. And when we take our eyes off of that, you start going, you know what, the way of these Babylonians ain't that bad. Maybe they figured some things out. Hey, actually, you know, these Canaanites over here, maybe there's something to this. Let's stay faithful. This is not our home. We are pilgrims. All of chapter 10 is an account of their brokenness, sorrow, and contrition over their sin and their repentance. The book of Ezra is a chronicle of hope and restoration. There's great hope that our God is one of forgiveness and will not turn his back on us when we seek him and repent. Do you remember in Jeremiah 29, the prophecy saying, you're gonna be here for 70 years, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans of good, not of evil, plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. What does Jeremiah go on to say there? For in those days you will seek me and you will find me I will be found, found by you when you seek me with all your heart. When you seek me with all your heart, God is a God who will not turn his back on us when we seek him and we repent. See, Ezra is good news for us because it reminds us of the grace, the mercy, and forgiveness of God which we all need time and time and time again in our lives 
just like Israel, just like Judah. And just like the Jews of old, when we seek God in sincerity and confess our sin and repent and return to God, He restores. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this precious gift that you have given us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see the truth and that your Holy Spirit is also at work in us, maturing us, refining us, pruning us, growing us. And God, I pray that that is the case for every true follower of Christ here today and watching online or in the comments for everyone that truly knows you. I pray that your Holy Spirit is continuing to grow us and mature us and, and prune us and refine us and, and remove our appetite for the ways and flavors of this world. And that we could learn from, from Ezra, who is in some ways a picture and foreshadow of Christ, loving God's law, studying God's law, committing his heart to it, not only to study it, but to do it and to teach it. God, I pray that you would give us that same deep conviction in our heart that we would commit our hearts to your word, not just because we're committed to being smart, intellectual, academic Christians, but because this knowledge leads us to know you better, to know you more, to know you rightly, to know you intimately that we don't bring our own pictures, our own images, our own ideas of who you are to the table, that we let the word of God teach us and reveal to us who you are. And that is a good God, a gracious God, a merciful God, a God who forgives his exiles, a God who brings them back to him, a God who rebuilds what was destroyed, a God who restores and forgives those who repent. God, I ask by your Holy Spirit today that you would search all of our hearts for areas of our lives that we need to repent of sin, confess sin, and turn back to you. And if there is anyone hearing my voice that has never acknowledged and, and confessed sin and repented of it and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, I ask by your Holy Spirit right now that you would bring that change into their heart, give them genuine faith that they would confess their sin, that they would repent and turn from it and return to the Lord for restoration. And God, as pilgrims in this life, keep us, hold us fast, continue to draw us to you that we would live faithful in the places you have sent us until we go home with you. For our good, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.